0: So let's read the scripture, uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, "'By what power or by what name did you do this?' Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "'Rulers of the people and elders,' And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them, So last week, we looked at Peter's sermon. This week, so Peter, they're preaching, and the sermon is going on longer than what, what the Scripture records, and by this time, Peter and John are both speaking. They're, the crowd is probably so large that they're both, uh, they're both preaching at this point, but then essentially the, the authorities come in and they arrest him. They interrupt what's happening. So this man was 40 years old, and Jesus, through the apostles, healed him. People are amazed, and Peter and John, they turn this attention into an evangelistic opportunity. They see thousands of people, a crowd surrounding them. God had worked through them and so now, rather than take glory for themselves or, or simply shake the guy's hand and send him home and say, yeah, aren't we wonderful? This was a great event. Yeah, we sure are serving the poor. This is great. They don't do that. They don't leave it at that. They, they see the people and the crowd and just how everyone is astonished, and they immediately point to Jesus. Immediately. That's exactly what they do. Now, let's look at a, a little bit of context here that those in power bring them in for questioning. These are religious leaders uh, who are given a little bit of political power and, to be honest, quite a bit of wealth from the Romans, okay? And so, by the way, this is the same group of people who plotted against Jesus Christ to have him killed. This is the same group of people who wanted Jesus dead. They hated Jesus because he was a threat to their power. Okay, And so now here are the apostles, the ones who scattered on the night of Jesus' arrest, walking right into the temple and being willing to share the gospel, to share Jesus Christ with these men. It's a very dangerous situation, actually. So who are the Sadducees? It tells us, verse 1, And they were speaking to the people, and the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Who are the Sadducees? We've talked a little bit in here about uh, the political system in, uh, in Jerusalem during, during this time period. But the Sadducees were one of the four sects that made up first century Judaism, right? They, they had their arch rivals, their political rivals, if you will, were the Pharisees. You've probably heard of them as well, right? So the Pharisees and Sadducees, both of them hated Jesus. Both of them uh, came together to ensure that Jesus was murdered, was killed, okay? But then there's also the Essenes and the Zealots, okay? Now, the Sadducees were a minority. There were not very many Sadducees during this time, but they were the dominant religious and political force in Israel. The high priest through this entire time period were all Sadducees. Okay? And so uh, they're a minority, but they're the most powerful. They're influential. All the high priests during this time frame were Sadducees. The Sadducees were aristocrats. They were wealthy. They were landowners, and their goal was to protect their political position and their wealth, right? So they opposed any, any overt opposition to Rome. They did not want Rome overthrown because Rome allowed them political power and quite a bit of wealth. And you can read more about them and really their intent in John 11. But the religion of the Sadducees was really no more than a social custom, okay? They believed only the written law. They rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees held so dear, They did not believe in the resurrection of the body or in any future rewards or punishments. Um, That's in opposition to the Pharisees. The Pharisees did believe that. They denied the existence of angels and and the spirit world in general also. They also denied the sovereignty of God. They thought man was master of his own destiny. Uh, Essentially, you could describe the Sadducees as theological liberals, okay? They were the the theological liberals of their day and and of their culture. And their religion, their faith, was really no more than for for social purposes. And we see this in Christianity today, don't we? We see uh, theological liberals in Christianity who who essentially make their Christian faith no more than, than a social custom. So, but these are the ones who are in power. And, and when you think about it, they're in power. Now, you had, the, you had Rome, who essentially was in control of everything. I mean, they, they were the, the empire that controlled really the world at this time. And what they would do is they would allow uh, the, the nations that they would conquer a little bit of sovereignty. A little, just a little bit, not a lot, but, but some. And so um, you have these political groups in, uh, in Jerusalem here at, at this time. And they all make up what's called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, you could kind of compare it today as kind of like our Congress and our Supreme Court rolled into one. All right? And so uh, they would they would hold court and they would they would have trials and things like that, uh, but they kind of functioned as a Congress and and a Supreme Court for religious law. Now, Rome controlled all other laws, but they kind of controlled religious law. the authorities here, the religious authorities, uh, they are annoyed, is, is a very um, light word to use, with the, with the apostles for a few reasons. First of all, they're annoyed that they were teaching the people at all, all right? The apostles, Peter and John, had no reputation as teachers, no, no credentials. They're not educated. Uh, they, they, they were not authorized. In other words, they didn't seek permission and, and authority to actually teach And so, uh, essentially, they're not allowed to teach at all. But here they are with this huge crowd around them. And not only do they have this huge crowd and they're teaching, but they're teaching Jesus Christ. They're teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a major problem through the eyes of the Sadducees. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. So, um, the major source of conflict here was Peter and John's proclaiming Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in that stuff. The Sadducees don't believe in any kind of resurrection. They don't believe in the spirit world. They don't they don't buy that. And they teach that, and everybody knows that. And so, now you have Peter and John in the temple, while the Sadducees are in power, they are the authority. They're in power. And they're teaching that not only did the Sadducees, Jesus Christ, the one who the Sadducees crucified or had crucified, but now that man who the Sadducees crucified rose from the dead, which is in direct opposition to what the Sadducees teach. That's a major problem through the eyes of the Sadducees, right? So they're proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, and the Sadducees would have viewed this as a direct attack on their authority. They were not pleased that the apostles were preaching the resurrection from the dead, but they rejected the idea of resurrection. If Jesus had risen, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then the Sadducees then are exposed as heretics, right? And, and through the eyes of the Sadducees, they couldn't have that. Now, it happens that that's true, the Sadducees were heretics, and Jesus did rise from the dead. But since they're in power, they're in control, their main goal is to maintain their power. And so now they're looking at Peter and John teaching Jesus's resurrection, and so they're going to address it. They're going to address it. But it's kind of a difficult situation because they can't deny the fact that God worked a miracle through them. And so uh, they can't just beat them or have them killed or whatever, because now the, the people are surrounding them. The people witness this incredible miracle. <clears throat> okay, so um, they cannot handle uh, the apostles' preaching, and so uh, the Scripture says, Uh, that they laid hands on them, which essentially means they grabbed them. Uh, This is not a laying on of hands like a prayer. This is, hey, we're grabbing you, dragging them off kind of thing. Um, They throw them in jail until the next day because the Sanhedrin couldn't hold court at night, which is, by the way, a law that they broke when Jesus was on trial. But at this point, they're going to honor that law. They imprisoned the the apostles, uh, but that did not nullify the effect of the sermon. Okay, so uh, Peter and John, the the miracle is performed, and then they stand up and they preach. And we see, according to the Scripture, that the church grows. uh, It grows, let's see, verse 4, it says, uh, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, this does not mean that 5,000 people or 5,000 men were saved on this day. What this is telling us is that the church on this day grew from 3,000 to 5,000 men. 5,000 men. That's not including women or children or anything like that. 5,000 men. So, all we know from this passage is that people were saved as a result of the miracle and the words of the apostles and the message of the apostles. A number of them believed. And and, uh, now the church grows to about... 5,000. And you can look. This is the first example of opposition or of persecution in the church. And you can look through church history, through the centuries of persecution, and persecution led to the expansion of the church for a number of reasons, right? This is also the last time in the book of Acts that the, that the size of the church is, is given, we have 5,000 men. Uh, after this, the church grows too fast to really keep a, an accurate count of how many people are a part of the church. It just says that the church was growing, okay? So the church explodes after this. Um, these men are, you could call them the culture police of the day. Uh, they didn't necessarily want to get to the truth as much as they wanted to defend their position and their power and their wealth. They might have been defending religious culture, but they weren't defending truth. And they knew it. They did. Because the Sadducees who ran the Sanhedrin at this time did not believe in the resurrection. Preaching Jesus' resurrection with success would really undo the power and the beliefs of the Sadducees. And And so they arrested him that's exactly what they did. They came and they interrupted him and they threw him in jail. Now, the defense is what's so incredible, the response of the apostles. We, we expect the Sadducees to act the way they did. We expect them to be offended. We expect them uh, to go in and persecute the church because that's exactly what they did to our Lord. But now, the, the response of the apostles is what changed. Remember, Peter and John both both did not support Jesus when Jesus was arrested, right? They were were cowards at that point. How do they respond? First of all, with an incredibly powerful, you could call it a speech or you could call it a sermon, however you want. But in verse 4, they asked them a question. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, in verse uh, verse 8, does not back down. Peter does not back down at all. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He says to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's courageous. Uh, that is bold, and that is strong, and that is clear, and that is a picture of courage. Peter knew very well that he could be, he could be killed for saying this, but he does it anyway. Essentially, he says, Jesus, cru- who you crucified, resurrected by God, he did this. And by the way, he's the only name by which anyone can be saved. There there is no one else who can save except for Jesus Christ, the one that you crucified and God raised from the dead. That's the one. No one else can be saved except through him. It's a simple, spirit filled, bold, courageous message. And it it should be exactly what the church advocates for. It's what what we advocate for. It's we should be bold, we should be courageous, we should be clear. And we should be Christ-centered. That's a beautiful message. Look, if you're asking how this man, you're acknowledging that this man was miraculously healed. If you're asking how that was done, it was through Jesus. The same man that you crucified. That's how it was done. I'm happy to answer that question. Peter delivers that message. But the leaders weren't necessarily impressed with the message. But they did notice two things. First, they noticed the response of the people to the miracle that was done to the lame man. And second, they noticed that average Joes had so much courage, that these average Joes with so much courage had just been with Jesus. They noticed that. So then what does that mean for us? Do you notice, do you notice how how your boldness is affected when you spend time in prayer and when you spend time in your scriptures? Or or when you you ignore those areas of your spiritual life, when you're ignoring uh, reading your scripture, you're ignoring your prayer life, do you notice how your boldness begins to weaken and your courage begins to fall away? Do you notice that? Could it be that that maybe we need a little less self-righteousness and a little more just righteousness? Do you think that would allow us to be emboldened? Do you think that maybe a little bit uh, less lip service about loving the world and more acts of love and service would would give us opportunities to share our faith and, and find evangelistic opportunities? Maybe we need to stop screaming about what we're against And courageously share who we're for. For some reason, the American church loves to take a stand about what we're against. But we're terrified to share who we're for. Now don't get me wrong, there are things that we need to stand against and oppose. But first, we need to share who we're for. First, we need to share why we're against things. First, we need to to tell of Jesus Christ and how he saved all of mankind. If we have all authority from Christ to preach, but we've not earned an audience with the world, then there's something wrong there. And I'm not saying that we have to be loved by the world or accepted by the world, but we do, have to, we do have to have an audience with the world. Let's look at some of these responses. First of all, of the people. We know that the church grows to 5,000 men. The church, people were saved that day. That's all we know. We don't know how many, uh, but the church grows. Josephus, uh, so the the church grows to 5,000 men. Josephus, who is a historian during this time frame, said that there were 6,000 Pharisees in Palestine during this time period. So the apostles, the church, is affecting its culture. The church at this point now is about the same size as the largest political party uh, in Palestine. It's a big deal, okay? And so the church is growing, All right? Let's look at the response of the authorities. Their response reveals that they did not want the truth. They just wanted to defend their power. They didn't try to disprove the apostles' uh, assertion that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They they didn't even address that. They didn't go crazy when they heard Peter say that. They didn't address it at all because they really couldn't because of this miracle, right? But they they also didn't look at the miracle and hear the words of Peter and say, You're right. You're right. I've been wrong this whole time. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe maybe we need to look at God for who He really is. Maybe we need to research the scriptures with humility. If God is working through you in the name of Jesus, then then maybe maybe I need to address that. Maybe I need to look at that a little closer. They lost their edge with their crowd. In other words, they they lost their power that day. They lost their ability to shut down the apostles. They were essentially reduced to saying, stop it. Stop it right now. I really mean it this time. They They had no authority on this day to really come after them because the crowds saw the miracle and were listening to the apostles and believed them. The crowds were with the apostles, not with the Sadducees. And without the crowds, then, the, then the, the Sadducees really had no power at all. That's why as you read the scriptures, the gospels, they, it's often, you know, as Jesus is dealing with the authorities of his day, they're always concerned with the crowd. They, they care about what the people are concerned with, more so than they care with, about with what God thinks of them. What's the response of the apostles? First of all, the threat of persecution did not shut them up. It, it, not at all one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. This is, this is just a, a beautiful uh, two verses. Verses 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, look, it, if you, you, you judge us, you charge us, you, you throw us in prison, you do what you have to do because you're the ones, that you're the authorities. You do what you need to do, but we're not going to change. We're not, we're not going to soften this blow. We're not going to change our message. We're not going to preach by any other name. Jesus Christ is the only name that we are preaching from. Jesus Christ is the source of power. He is the Messiah. You want us to change our message, that's not happening and you're going to have to do what you have to do. It's incredible. It it really, really is. Now, Christians should obey their their government authority. That's Romans 13. If you weren't aware of that, read Romans 13. But in this case, they could not obey. Their authorities were telling them to basically preach heresy, and, and they couldn't do it. Now, they're respectful, and they're peaceful, and they honor those that are in charge of them, but they just couldn't obey them. So then the next question is, um, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to this message? When, when we see the change in Peter and John, and we see that the Sadducees are coming essentially only to preserve their own power, and we hear the message of, of Peter when he says, "...and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." That is bold, and that is clear, and that is powerful. How do we respond when we hear that? How do we respond when someone who just a few weeks prior was just a coward who ran away, and now he's saying this, knowing full well that he could be crucified for it? When we face moments, when when we face moments where we we can't toe the line, or where when our faith is in opposition to what culture expects of us. We have to ignore society. First thing we need to do is we need to examine our motives. Are we moved by our conviction and our faith? Or are we moved by our preferences or seeking our own glory or attention? Look, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that our our motives are always Christ-centered. But they should be. That's what's expected of us. So we do have to evaluate our own motives. But we also need to know that some of our values and beliefs seem crazy to our peers. What we believe about Jesus Christ and about God and about the Holy Spirit and, and the Trinity and, and creation and, and, and all of these things can sound absolutely insane to the world who doesn't believe. We have to understand that. It's okay. We shouldn't get offended by that, we should expect it. We, but we need to always speak the truth. And live convincing lives of integrity, of service, and of good works. Look, our faith is what saves us. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. But good works flow from that faith. We should constantly be seeking to love our neighbor, to serve our our neighbor, to serve our city, to love our city, to to serve the poor, however you want to word it, to feed the hungry, uh, clothe the naked. We should constantly be looking to do these things because of our faith. These works do not save us, but they flow from our faith. We have to live lives of integrity. Integrity isn't just honesty. Integrity is essentially practicing what you preach. Here's what I say I believe, and I am this way in every corner of my life. I can't be this way on Sunday morning with my church and then on Saturday night I'm a different way and then while I'm watching football in a couple hours I'm a completely different way. That's that's not how it works. If that's you, then you lack integrity. We should be impacted by what we believe. If we believe in Jesus Christ and we believe the Scriptures are the Word of God, then our life should demonstrate that. And when that happens, when people recognize that we are motivated by a faith in a God who absolutely loves us, who's gracious and forgiving, and when when we want to reflect that love onto our city and onto our neighbors, then we earn an audience. We do. We earn an audience, and people are willing to listen to big beliefs like heaven and hell and and a, a God who has been raised from the dead. It's not enough to simply tell people that our words are true. It's not. It's not enough to tell people that that the motives for our beliefs are pure. We have to live it. We have to be men and women of integrity. This trust is earned. Well, look, there's no guarantee that this will always satisfy the culture. And I'm not telling you this is the silver bullet or anything like that. But I, what I am telling you is that your works and your attitude and the way you live your life should flow from your faith in Jesus Christ. And you can read the Scriptures to see what's expected of you in there. But this approach, it's not always going to lead people to Christ, but this will help us earn goodwill in, in the ear of our local culture. And it insulates us from unfair criticism. The apostles lived what they believed. They lived what they preached and everyone knew it. They did. Everyone recognized them and and saw who they were and what they did. And because they did that, it changed the world. It it really did. If if we do the same, we can certainly earn an audience to share the message of Jesus Christ crucified right here in Billings. The the apostles' lives were changed by Jesus. Jesus. And then their life was changed again by the Spirit. And when their life aligned with their faith, people saw it, people were excited, people believed, and the world was changed. Our life is changed when we came to Christ. The Spirit indwelled with us. And when we live that faith out, people recognize it, and people are willing to listen to the message that we have. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much. Uh, for today, Lord. And, and God, we, we thank you for the fact that um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that you have uh, again given us another example of, of men of faith and how they acted and how your spirit worked through them and how you grew your church, Lord. God, we thank you that you gave us a model for how to deal with opposition. Father, we thank you uh, for, for the courage that you gave to Peter and John on that day. And we thank you that, that you have put it in your word for us to look at and, and, and for us to see. Father, we pray for that same courage. We pray for that boldness and that clarity. Father, we thank you for, or we pray that, that we would have a passion to reach our city the same way that Peter and John did. God, I pray for courage and boldness and clarity and excitement, Lord. I pray that, that we would preach nothing other than Jesus Christ. Father, we know that he is the only, that Jesus Christ is the only name by which men could be saved. I pray that you would use this church, this body, to do that right here in the city of Billings, beginning in the heights. Father, I pray that if there is anyone who does not know you, who's rejected your gospel or not heard it or, or just is, is questioning, I pray that that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that you would convict them. I pray that that you would lead them to go over to the prayer wall and and talk to one of the elders or or to me. Father, I pray that that they would be willing to open up the scriptures and, and that they would be willing to hear about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he accomplished. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. And We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.